This is Moment in Thought. Each week, one big idea inspired by thinkers across time. This is not an act of God. We're dealing with a society made and ruled by men. Their words just might challenge you. I'm not answering your question, but I'm telling you how difficult a why question is. Inspire you. Let them come to Berlin. Or even change the way you think. I'm a man who believed that I died 20 years ago. And I live like a man who is dead already. This is history worth repeating. The coronavirus has upended the world we once shared. But in its path of destruction lies a choice we all must make. And that choice is this. Who is this country for? Does it belong to the high-flying executive? The suburban mother of three, or the blue-collar worker trucking freight on yet another lonely stretch of road. Now, the road ahead for all of us is long, but if history has taught us anything, it is that through every war, epidemic, and natural disaster, humanity will thrive once again. But the question is who? Who gets to thrive in this post-COVID world? Some worrying signs already showed the pandemic affects Americans unequally. A survey by Goldman Sachs revealed almost two-thirds of American small business owners say that their cash would run out in under three months. And a recent paper by an Oxford economics professor finds that an American who normally earns less than $20,000 a year is twice as likely to have lost their job due to the pandemic as an American earning $80,000 a year. Over the next four weeks, we will answer this question, who is this country for? We will look at the concept of inequality. We will understand what is at play here, and we will explore ideas and policies that might help create a more equitable society for all of us. This is quite the task, but we are not alone on this. We have Piketty on our side. And if you don't know who Piketty is, well, let me introduce you. Thomas Piketty is an economist without equal. His first book, Capital in the 21st Century, conveys a gloomy but accurate look at the wealth gap in Western economies. But his second book, Capital and Ideology, extends that scope of inequality by looking at it through the lens of time, location, and ideology, which in this case stands for politics. His latest book, Capital and ideology is a thousand pages. So forgive me if I leave out important parts, but I am here to answer one question and one question alone. What is the reason for the United States' extreme level of inequality? Now, let's take a step back. Extreme levels of inequality sound somehow political and alarmist. That much is true. But is this true? Are we at an extreme level of inequality in the United States. Thomas Piketty writes, quote, every human society must justify its inequalities. Unless reasons for them are found, the whole political and social edifice stands in danger of collapse, close quote. This is to say that feeling you're feeling is normal. So when I tell you that inequality in America is extreme, That thought you have in the back of your mind to justify it as normal is normal. That's okay. We expect that. 
But what I do ask for the remainder of this show is that you take in the fact, as I do, and imagine with me what these facts mean. And the fact is this. We are unequal. And education is the greatest source of that inequality in the United States, at least according to Piketty. He writes, quote, This is particularly true when it comes to the crucial issue of investment in and access to education. The most striking fact about the increase of inequality in the United States is the collapse of the share of total national income going to the bottom 50%, which fell from 20% in 1980 to a little more than 12 in 2018. Such a dramatic collapse from an already low level can only be explained by a multiplicity of factors. One such factor was the sharp decrease in the federal minimum wage in real terms since 1980. Another was significant inequality of access to education. It is striking to discover the degree to which access to a university education in the United States depends on parental income. It has been shown that the probability of access to higher education, including the two-year junior college degrees, was just slightly above 20% for the 10% of young adults whose parents had the lowest income, increasing linearly to more than 90% for those whose parents had the highest income. Close quote. Let's put that in plain speak. Education has always been the great mobilizer, not just in the United States, but everywhere. It allows people born in a slum to find their way to the white picket fence and plug in to the quote-unquote knowledge economy. It's meritocracy at its finest. It's the American dream personified. But when access to education is directly correlated to the income of your parents, how then can this American dream be realized if you are a child of poor parents? A way to visualize this is to say that if your parents are really, really poor, you have a 20% chance of getting a secondary education. And if your parents are really, really well off, you have over a 90% chance of going to college. Now, yes, I... I understand there are many justifications on why this is, but the question remains. Is it equitable that there is so much more of a correlation with your parents' income and your access to education as there is to your natural talents and smarts? That is a moral question as old as time. It is as old as the scriptures and is as clear as the American Constitution. The heart of the question is, whether all Americans are to be afforded equal rights and equal opportunities. And even if your answer is no, that the United States has always been like this for education, Piketty does not agree. He says, quote, In 1900 to 1910, when Europeans were just reaching the point of universal primary schooling, the United States was already well on the way to generalize secondary education. In fact, rates of secondary schooling defined as the percentage of children ages 12 to 17, boys and girls, attending secondary school reached 30% in 1920, 40 to 50% in the 1930s, and nearly 80% in the late 1950s and early 1960s. In other words, by the end of World War II, the United States had come close to universal secondary education, 
And at the same time, the secondary schooling rate was just 20 to 30% in the United Kingdom and France, and 40% in Germany. In all three countries, it is not until the 1980s that one finds secondary schooling rates of 80%, which the United States had achieved in the early 1960s. Close quote. That's a lot of grasp. That there was once a time that the United States was a leader in education, not just in quality schooling, the Harvards, Princetons, and the amazing state schools that we have here stateside, but the fact that the majority of the population could enjoy that. But still, if your response is that I don't care about poor people, I just care about me and my family, you're kind of a jerk, but you're also kind of wrong. Educational inequality affects economic growth, and economic growth affects not only how much you're paid, but the quality and quantity of stuff you can buy. Piketty says, quote, The stagnation of educational investment in the rich countries since the 1980s may help to explain not only the rise of inequality, but also the slowing of economic growth. In the United States, per capita national income grew at a rate of 2.2% per year in the period of 1950 to 1990, but slowed to 1.1% in the period of 1990 to 2020. Close quote. And if you're listening, like I know you are, you and I are coming to a realization that something happened in 1980. There is a mystery on our hand. Something fundamentally shifted the trajectory of access to quality education in the United States and powered the current income inequality in this country. What was that? How did the same United States that pioneered universal access to primary and secondary education from 1880 to 1980 suddenly fall off a cliff in 1980? Well, this book isn't capital and ideology for nothing because in January of 1981, Ronald Reagan became the 40th president of the United States. And according to Piketty, quote, everyone should also agree that the conservative Reagan revolution of the 1980s was a failure. Growth in the United States fell by half. And the notion that it would have fallen even more in the absence of conservative reforms is not very plausible. Close quote. Next week, Reaganomics comes to a campus near you. With an economic affliction of great proportions. We suffer from the longest and one of the worst sustained inflations in our national history. It distorts our economic decisions, penalizes thrift, and crushes the struggling young and the fixed income elderly alike. It threatens to shatter the lives of millions of our people. Idle industries have cast workers into unemployment, human misery, and personal indignity. Those who do work are denied a fair return for their labor by a tax system which penalizes successful achievement and keeps us from maintaining full productivity. <laughs>